Hello and welcome to the Wavel Room podcast. On this episode, we interview Dr. Mike Martin about his new book, Why We Fight. Mike gives an insight into his experiences of combat and how they shape the book. We also discuss his views on women in ground close combat, military recruiting, and how the findings of his book are useful for all elements of the UK's counterterrorism strategy. Don't forget, we're new to podcasting, so please head to thewavelroom.com and give us some feedback. Enjoy. Mike, first of all, I'd like to start with you, maybe introducing yourself a bit, give yourself a bit more of your background. Thanks, Archie. Um, so I am an ex-reservist, I was with the Royal Yeomanry um, and then briefly with the Intelligence Corps. I, I did a six-year FTRS um, where I learned push to and then developed the cultural advisor capability for defence. So I was the first cultural advisor and then I set it up and trained the first batch and helped set up DCSU. Um, the army then paid for my PhD, which was very kind of them. Uh, and then we had a bit of a dispute over that when um, I turned it into a book. So I resigned. Um, uh, some controversy, which helped the book sales, proceeds to charity, so that was great. And since then, I've um, done various things. I drove a Land Rover across Africa and across the Congo, hence the second book. Worked in, in risk management in Somalia. Uh, and in Burma, Myanmar, um, and then came back to the UK about three years ago, spent a couple of years working on the management team of a global charity called Common Purpose that does cross-cultural leadership. And in October, I came back into conflict, started working in the stabilisation unit, um, and I've just resigned from the stabilisation unit because it wasn't for me. And so here we are. Fantastic. And this week you've released, from well, last week you released week, your yeah. book, Why We Fight. Absolutely. Uh, that's really what we're here to talk about this morning. But so one of the things that you said in the book launch, you mm. talked about how much you enjoyed combat. Yeah. And I think you, you talk about it an awful lot in the book. So I'd like to start by talking about that, your experiences of combat. Sure. Um, so I don't think I'm alone in saying that combat is the most exhilarating thing that you're ever going to do and not just the actual moment of the firefight but also the the anticipation the training the motivation i think for young men particularly although women do to a lesser degree have these sort of yearnings or emotions um, i think for young men particularly they are almost drawn towards it and the you know when you when you've done that training and you're on your first patrol where you get into a firefight and it, it's utterly exhilarating and if you look up and down the firing line um, th- that every people are whooping and, and shouting for joy and that doesn't mean that there aren't negative emotions associated with combat of course there's terror if um, you know I can remember one particular patrol where I got trapped between my side and their side, if you like, and that was utterly terrifying, uh, sort of on my lonesome in between two firing lines. And also, you know, when it goes wrong and someone gets killed or injured, then sort of anger and sadness and depression and all of those emotions. But there was a strong undercurrent of, of, of positive emotions around it, yeah. 
Interesting you talk about, about women. Yeah. Um, you know, with the military changing its, I think, introducing women into ground close combat this sure. year. Sure. Uh, do you want to expand on your views there? Sure. Um, so, maybe a little bit about the book and then I can explain, you know, how that, you know, yeah, the that difference women, yeah. So, men are drawn towards combat or men fight because, in evolutionary terms, they want to achieve status, so a higher status and um, belonging to a cohesive social group. And status is important because in evolutionary terms, for most of our evolutionary history, higher status means more women, and more women is increased evolutionary fitness. I mean, that's the whole point of evolution, is survival and reproduction. For that reason, um, men on average are predisposed to seek status more than women. And the primary mechanism which drives us to seek status is testosterone and testicles produce testosterone and that's why men have 20 times on average higher levels of testosterone than women so men tend to on average seek status more than women um, so that's why men are drawn to combat more and the briefest of glances at history will tell you that men form the vast bulk of fighters Murderers, you know, if you look at worldwide murder statistics, 95% of murders are committed by men. Um, and the reason for that is because there are biological differences between men and women. So you ask me about women going into ground combat. Um, actually, I don't think those views are incommensurate, just because on average, men are driven towards combat more than women are. That doesn't mean that some women have those same drives at the same levels because of course the, the the levels to which you seek status and belonging between men and women differ but of course those bell curves overlap and we live in societies where we believe for moral and practical reasons that men and women should have the same opportunities and I think this speaks to like a deeper philosophical point the sort of Clausewitzian trinity between government uh, you know the people and the military and if you imagine a Venn diagram between those two things three things sorry they're never going to sit exactly on top of each other but there needs to be an overlap because if your military gets too far away from your society or your government effectively what you're doing is you're subcontracting out the means of violence and so your military has to and there's always a lag I mean we only need to look around an officer's mess to see that there's a massive <laughs> lag between um, you know the, the military and society and you know the government doesn't understand the military and so on and so forth but those things need to overlap and for that reason it's you know that's another reason why it's entirely appropriate for you know these recent changes towards introducing women into ground combat. In fact, I'm surprised it took so long. It's, it's crazy that it took so long when you think about it. And for those who say, and there are plenty of people who sort of thump the table and go, well, you know, this is about military effectiveness, and it, it's not really, is it? You you have standards to get into the parachute regiment. You have these standards to get into uh, the uh, 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 Royal Logistics Corps. You have these standards. If you get into in the SAS, you have these standards. If you can meet those standards. Who cares? Like, who cares what particular flavour of person you are? Something else you talk... Actually, you spoke about this last week. Um, so one of the questions you took at your, your book launch in, in Chatham House up the road was uh, the difference between volunteers and conscripts, which I think is interesting. Um, 
I know there's a, there's a study that I think you, you talked about being pretty much debunked about whether people fired their rifles or not in combat. But it, uh, and if they were conscripts, they were less likely to. And it was, I think you said it was shown that this study we had a, was, was pretty poorly resourced. Mm. The Marshall studies. That's yeah. the Marshall studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think what you can't get away from is there is definitely a, a large body of social evidence that comes up. So, for instance, centenary of the First World War, probably the largest conscript army that the UK has ever fielded. An awful lot of, of social stuff that comes up from that. Poetry, books, people talking about how they really didn't enjoy that experience. And that yeah. kind of goes against what you say in your book, yeah. which is that war yeah. is something that people do like. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, come back to this bell curve, right? So in populations, let's pick something like height, okay? And if we've got um, on, on the, uh, the up-down axis, I won't use X and Y just in case your <laughs> listeners are not, not, not scientists, but on the up-down axis, you've got number. And on the left-right axis, you've got height. So, you know, one, one and a half meters up to say two meters so your height Archie and um, 193 centimeters right just 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 to be yeah absolutely um, and so you have this you have what is a bell curve on 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 that graph and what that means is that m- most people the median number of people by definition have a kind of middling amount of height and then you have extremes so you have very few people who are very short and very few people who are very tall but most people are in the kind of five to six foot sort of, uh, and obviously there are slightly different curves for men and women. On average, women are shorter than men, right? And so it is with status and belonging, which are the two drives, the subconscious drives that drive people into combat. And so if you're conscripting an army, what's conscription? Conscription is saying that everyone between the ages of let's say 18 and 30 has to go into the army right so you're taking the entire bell curve of you know whether you seek status and belonging a lot or a little you're joining the army because we're conscripting you you've got no choice now compare that to the british army um well so my generation right i i started my after us in 2007 so a lot of the people who i joined the army with joined in order to go to Afghanistan or Iraq like they knew they were going that's why they joined and you know there's other social evidence peacetime armies and wartime armies uh, are different right you know there was a joke amongst us who the generation who joined in order to go to Iraq and Afghanistan that the rest of the army was waiting to go back to normal soldiering by which they meant skiing in Germany and you know and we couldn't under because we joined to get in, do a couple of tours, get that rush, that thrill, and then check out. And it was like, thank you very much. I've got no interest in normal soldiering, quote unquote. And why is that? Well, because I think because you're not in conscription where you're taking the whole bit of that bell curve, in a, in a volunteer army where there's a war on, effectively those people self-select in order to go into the army. So those who feel that they're drawn to combat or to exhilaration, self-select to go in. And I don't have the data. I would love for someone to do a study of this, but by sampling, you know, DNA of different armies at different times. Yeah. But I would, I would hypothesize, and the evidence in the book strongly backs up, that, that those people in a, you know, you have a difference between 
a conscript army to a peacetime volunteer army to a wartime volunteer army, a volunteer army that has some wars on to fight. And I suspect at that point you would find people at different places on the bell curve in the army. It's, I mean, it's really interesting because I imagine there's plenty of, of units that are seeing senior, well, relatively senior now soldiers and, and officers leaving because they joined for that experience yeah. and that experience isn't on the cards for yeah. them anymore. Yeah. And we have, a, you know, we have a recruitment uh, crisis issue, whatever you want to describe it in the army at the moment, and people are pulling their hair out going, why is that? Well, there's, there's two very obvious reasons. One is the economy is okay at the moment. It's teetering, but you know we've got a lot of uncertainty at the moment. Uh, but it's but it's well, employment's pretty high. Exactly, employment's high for now, and so that's all good. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is there's no wars. So why why join the army if you're from that sample of people? If you're from that sample of people, this is belonging. I mean, when that campaign hits in, when did that hit? In? mid-2017 mid-late 2017 yeah they were certainly talking about it mid-2017 there's a whole section in your in your book about belonging and status this must have been the jackpot for you yeah I mean I I was so I was writing this book um, because I felt that there were these my lived experience of combat didn't match how people spoke about war where it was a sort of a a trial and a, you know it was a bad thing and these soldiers <laughs> sacrificed themselves and it didn't make sense and I, I sort of through my research came across belonging and status and then I uh, someone suggested to me that I should go on YouTube and look at military recruitment adverts which I recommend to everyone because YouTube carries them from all the armies around the world. So there's US Marine Corps and French Army and French Foreign Legion. And there's these amazing adverts that just give these little windows into what different um, cultures are like and how they see their militaries being used. And even like American police, I mean, American police recruitment videos are more worry than our Royal Marine adverts. I mean, they're absolutely ludicrous. Um, but, but the thing, I saw these, this huge selection of adverts and I saw that status and belonging kept on coming up. And I thought, that's amazing. So these adverteers, advertisers, sorry, have stumbled across what I'm, you know, what I've come to through, through, through evolution and evolutionary psychology. And I then came to the British Army adverts called This Is Belonging, um, which was, you know, a whole series of mundane military you know, being on stag or you know, being in the rain or cleaning your rifle or whatever, but they were positive. They were they were portrayed as positive experiences because you were there with your comrades and you all belonged to this cohesive social group. Um, so it was a it was a great sort of uh, it was a sign that I you know I was on the right track because when you're doing research, you know, you follow dead ends and you do this and you do that. And then when that came along. And I realised that I, it was a great vindication of the sort of work that I'd done and that sort of made me feel that I was on the right track. Since leaving the military, have you been able to leave the military? Do you feel like you've left? I can't help but notice you have a compass on your watch. Actually, 
I can't help but notice that there's a company called Master Sergeant somewhere who is down a watch. Because <laughs> yours, yours is on the table. <laughs> Apologies to whoever owns that. Yeah. Um, so, and just for clarification, this is not a G10 watch. <laughs> this is one that somebody bought me. Um, yeah, have I been able to leave the military? That's very interesting mentally. Um, it's such the six years that I spent in uniform were you know, in my late twenties were utterly shaping. And I think I felt that I had left, but it was very interesting, like a few years later somebody somebody said to me, Oh but of course you're a military man I said what do you mean what are you, what are you talking about um, but so so uh, what other people see in me I guess is is what I hadn't realised myself um, and it's such a shaping experience it's I mean it's such a cliche but it made a man of me do you know what I mean that was the first significant thing that I did in my life and not just the military experiences like combat but also you know Learning push to starting helping start DCSU and all those things it was a very very formative um, experience. It was a very intense period of of shaping. So, and the compass on the watch, by the way, it, just to clarify, <laughs> mate, have you seen that compass? Like that's a Christmas cracker. Like if I like, can you imagine using that to navigate with? No, it's I um, had that on my watch when I drove a, a Land Rover across the Congo because it was very useful to have a quick, like, oh, quickly, which way is north type of uh, thing. And yes, I do wear it to remind me of when I was more exciting. Do you think your military service shapes the way you approach this book? Because I think there's a lot of utility in the book for the military. Um, I think one of the major audiences for the book it is people who are serving have served. Um, I think, like with an intimate war, I was very angry when I was in Afghanistan, when I came out of Afghanistan. And I was angry because we completely failed to get to grips with what we were doing. We completely failed to understand the Afghans. Our, our strategy was stillborn because we didn't feed up the reality of the situation on the ground to our political masters and they didn't you know so therefore they were making uninformed decisions i think it's fair to say that the senior leadership of the army at the time could have done a lot better to to not volunteer the army for 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 what was a uh, an ill-conceived and ill-thought-out venture and you know the strategy is formed in that layer between generals and politicians right the politicians go this is the plan and the generals go well you know that's that's not necessarily the best plan and how about this one and the politicians go well that doesn't quite achieve my objective and through that discourse you come up with a strategy and if you want to understand how to do that read Alan Brooks diaries that's a masterclass in how to do strategy um, so I was very angry and an intimate war for me was a catharsis, it was a way of setting out what that war was about and it was about us not understanding and it was about us being manipulated by a bunch of Helmandis who are mostly illiterate.
And similarly, why we fight was cathartic in a different way. Like everyone needs to get over their experiences of war in a different way because it's intense and it's intensely positive, exhilarating, and it's intensely, as we've discussed, you know, um, when you've done things like carry dead bodies and all those things that, you know, you, and so you, for me, writing was a way of putting some of those things to bed to try and explain what was going on. You know, when people said that the Taliban were inspired by religion and jihadi ideology and we were there because of democracy, you know, yet the experience was totally, totally different, then you, well, how do you marry those two? What's the marriage mm. of those things? And so, yes, selfishly, I was using the book to cathartize myself, if that's I'm not quite sure that's how you say it, but let's go with it. Uh, and also... I mean, who are the audiences? Yes, I think military people read it and they go, ah, yeah, like the penny drops, I hope. And certainly the ones I've spoken to so far have said that it has. Um, the other audience is sort of conflict scholars because they often don't understand that war does have this other visceral, primal animal side. They, they treat it under the rational actor model where they sort of have social science variables and they try and measure the levels of ideology in a group. And I just, you can't, I mean, you can't do conflict by spreadsheet. Conflict is, it's a human thing. It's about psychology and conflict by spreadsheet, trying to understand it with variables is, data is obviously important, but that can't be the primary lens through which you view things. And again, for me, the penny dropped when, uh, uh, you know, one of the joys of being a conflict scholar is you get invited to conferences and you get to listen. And this one happens to be in Florence. So I went to Florence and we chatted about conflict uh, and we went to dinner and we were having this lovely Italian dinner and with a table of international conflict scholars from all over the world. And they were talking about the causes of conflict. And, and I said, but guys, hang on, the one thing you're missing is that it's really fun. And they all looked at me like I was completely mad. And the penny dropped for me. I suddenly thought, oh my God, these are the guys who the newspapers go to when they need an expert on conflict. But that, because they haven't been through that experience, they don't have that other side. So that's another target audience for the book. I don't know how... Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And then, of course, the other audience is, is government policymakers, and, and they are the most resistant or impervious to any sort of change. But interestingly, in the, the conclusion of the book, well, I, I certainly thought it was interesting, you talk a little bit about the applicability of some of the stuff you've learned to the counter-terrorism strategy, and particularly prevent. Yeah. Um, which you think for the title, Why We Fight, Prevent mm. would be kind of the opposite end of the spectrum sure. to what you've been looking at. Sure. I wonder if you mind explaining how Why We Fight could help with Prevent. Yeah. Well, so if, if we argue that people are driven to group violence, you know, warfare, because of these subconscious evolved drives towards status and belonging, then... And, and, and terrorism, by the way, is a form of group violence. It might be an individual perpetrator, but they're doing it for a group, right? And so if you argue that people are driven to fight for their group because of status and belonging, 
Um, then if you're trying to stop them doing that, you want to make sure your strategy doesn't exacerbate those, those feelings of humiliation. So humiliation is the opposite of status, right? I'm pointing out that you're of a lower status than me and humiliating you. And belonging, you want to help people feel like they belong. So when your prevent strategy is designed around identifying extremist thoughts and prosecuting it, I can't think of a better way of pushing people away from the mainstream, i.e. making them feel like they don't belong, and, and humiliating them. Um, and this is a difficult argument to make in policy terms because it's very easy to count up, you know, speeches by moderate, in inverted commas, imams. But of course, if you're a second generation British Muslim, you feel, already you feel some dissonance between the culture of your parents and the culture of the United Kingdom. And so there's a dissonance there, which, you know, which, who do I belong to? What's my path? Who am I? We haven't really, the, a, a Muslim diasporic British identity hasn't yet, I think it's forming now, but it hasn't formed in a way that those people automatically know who, who they belong to. And so if your counter-terrorism strategy is aimed at isolating people and separating them from groups, I would argue that that's, not a good thing to do, although we can measure it with like social media reach of moderate imams. Much more um, efficacious, I would argue, are things like sports clubs and youth clubs and all those things that help people transition from belonging to their family to belonging to society. Like age 17, 17 is a difficult time because you're leaving one group, your family, and you're joining a much bigger group and you need to a find your place in it status and b you need to know which 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 of these flavors of groups do i belong to and so a government strategy that helps people do that i would argue would be much better now it's very difficult here's the problem in policy terms it's very difficult to say that 100 million pounds we invested in youth clubs has led to an absence of terrorist attacks because it's negative evidence and so that's the challenge for policymakers. but you know, I, I would argue that, and you know, this has been reflected in a lot of terrorism research. It's not just why we fight that says this. A lot of people have looked at these factors and come to the same conclusions that I have. Um, the difficulty for the government is incorporating that evidence into their policy making. It, it is a tough call, especially when people are calling for that money perhaps to be moved somewhere else, somewhere where there's a more tangible sure. benefit. Sure. In tight, tight financial times like we have, people always want to look, I think, towards the tangible benefit yeah yeah so mike thank you very much for coming out today and talking to us thank you for being patient with our first podcast no, it's a pleasure it was a real honor to be the first uh Wavel room podcast first of many hopefully first of many indeed uh, there'll be a survey going out with this podcast so people can rate how they think it's done we'd appreciate it if you could take the time to fill that out uh, and there's also some areas on there where you can fill out the sort of things that you would like to hear about in future, sort of topic and policy areas you'd like us to cover. Everything you do helps us improve. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks, Archie. Thank you for listening to the Wavel Room podcast. Don't forget, you can find all of our great articles and content at wavelroom.com. Also, you can find us on iTunes for our other podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, please give us a five-star rating or whatever you prefer. Ratings are really important to us. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye.